Hi, and welcome to Declarations, the human rights podcast run out of the Center of Governance and Human Rights here at the University of Cambridge. My name is Scott Novak, and I'll be your host on today's show. In this episode, we discuss the controversy surrounding the International Criminal Court, which was established in 2002 to prosecute individuals for committing genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. However, only Africans have been prosecuted by the court thus far, leading some states to criticize the court for a perceived bias against Africans and for undermining state sovereignty. Some African governments have announced plans to withdraw from the court. In light of these controversies, is the ICC really a force for good in African states? Is the court's stated goal of justice for victims compatible with fostering peace in states experiencing extreme conflict? And how does the court's conception of justice connect and contrast with other conceptions of justice, such as transitional and local justice initiatives? To discuss these questions, we are joined today by three excellent guests, Dr. Adam Branch, Georgiana Epiore, and Sarer Mohammed. Dr. Adam Branch is a university lecturer in the Department of Politics and International Studies here at Cambridge, currently researching international law in Africa. Georgiana Epire and Sarer Mohammed are both MPhil International Relations and Politics students here at Cambridge. Georgiana's research focuses on the responsibility to prosecute, and she's the founder and editor-in-chief of the Responsibility to Protect Student Journal. Sarer is currently researching transitional justice, critical theory, and the Horn of Africa. So, Adam, I'd like to start off um, by asking you, what is the International Criminal Court and how did this idea of a criminal court come about? And now why is this idea in the court itself very controversial among some African states? Well, the idea for the International Criminal Court had been around for a number of decades, but I think it really sort of took um, it really took off after the end of the Cold War. You had a moment when suddenly humanitarian intervention, various kinds of uh, human rights intervention in, you know, guided by the Security Council seemed to be a reality. And it was a moment when all of a sudden experiments in sort of global governance and in humanitarian governance became seen as a possibility. So I think that the International Criminal Court sort of emerged from that early 1990s kind of euphoria over possibilities for a human rights world order. The Rome Statute was completed in 1998, and it took about four years to get enough ratification for it to enter into force in 2002. It was sort of imagined during the 1990s, which was an era of really sort of optimism over the possibilities for human rights, for humanitarian intervention. However, it came into practice in 2002 after 9-11 in a very different world. So the International Criminal Court found itself not operating in a world of humanitarian intervention and human rights, but rather in a world of the war on terror. And very quickly, I think, realized that, especially the prosecutor realized that it was very important for it to not tread on the U.S. government's toes if it was going to have any chance of surviving. And so I think that what we saw from the very beginning is the International Criminal Court realizing that if it wanted to survive, if it wanted to have effective prosecutions, for one thing, it was going to have to at least not upset the U.S. and perhaps at best align itself with the U.S. so as to have some kind of enforcement power, but also in in other countries that it intervened in. I think the, the International Criminal Court realized that, you know, it had no enforcement power when it was set up. It uh, It's an independent body. It has the Security Council has some 
role in determining where it intervenes, but it's by no means a tool of the Security Council. And so from the beginning, the International Criminal Court was faced with this dilemma that they're supposed to be enforcing international law. They're supposed to be enforcing international criminal law against anyone who violates it anywhere in the world. But on the other hand, they have no enforcement power. It's been set up through a treaty among states, and it is in a world of power politics. And so from the very beginning, the ICC had to figure out how to deal with this fact. Here it is a sort of a moral body claiming to enforce universal law, but operating in a world of very violent power politics, mm-hmm. especially and, after. Yeah. Yeah. So with, with that explanation, it seems like states were clearly aware of these power dynamics. Um, and yet two thirds of African states signed up and now there's some remorse or some regrets. So I I guess the first um, remorse is coming from this perceived African bias. Out of the 10 uh, uh, open investigations of the ICC, nine of them were on the African continent, uh, with the exception of Georgia. But I think it's it's worth mentioning that only five of these investigations were cases of self-referrals. So the African governments have referred a situation to the court voluntarily. Mm-hmm. Three of these um, cases have been um, opened by uh, the prosecutor because the prosecutor has this power on uh, his or her own initiative to open investigations. And two of them by the United Nations Security Council. So what I'm trying to say is that you have this perceived image of the ICC being a racist court, uh, which I don't necessarily agree with. And I think that actually the um, rejection of the African states from how the ICC acts comes from a defense of pluralism in the international society. So the approach that the International Criminal Court has to justice comes very much from a neoliberal retributive perspective, whereas the African states, many of them who have been experiencing uh, conflict and the challenges of dealing with post-conflict reconciliation and justice might have some other ideas on how it's best to deliver justice on the ground. And one criticism that I think is relatively common about the ICC is that idea of what justice is, that can sometimes prolong conflicts because that raises the stakes for war criminals. If they surrender power, they could be brought to be prosecuted before the ICC. And so it gives them a, a huge incentive to avoid releasing power and to avoid just surrendering. Yes. Yeah, so one of the things that are enshrined in the Rome Statute is this inability of the International Criminal Court to allow for amnesties or exiles. So you have this emerging responsibility to prosecute, where the emphasis is very much on prosecution and punishment of perpetrators of uh, mass atrocity crimes. And options such as exile and amnesties are um, are eliminated. But this is not necessarily new for the International Criminal Court. This dates back to, for example, the Genocide Convention in 1948, which establishes a duty to prosecute or extradite. And I think, yes, by emphasizing this prosecution element, you sort of create a moral hazard. There isn't any incentive for these perpetrators to uh, relinquish power. One sort of structural difference is that for people who are not living in the midst of a conflict, it's a lot easier to demand justice, even if it's going to undermine the possibilities for peace, because they don't Mm -hmm. have to live with the consequences of continued conflict. 
So I think that for people living in conflict and facing the consequences of war themselves, that they are very often going to be more willing to, you know, have peace, even if some kind of justice doesn't come about um, as a result of it. So you've done a lot of research in Uganda, right? Are they aware, like the populations that you've talked to, aware of the ICC and how they influence things? What What is their view of it? So it's, well, you might have expected this answer, but it's complicated. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think in, you know, in the areas that I've done research and areas that I've spent time, uh, you know, in those communities, like any community on the face of the planet, there are debates and controversies over something as sort of politically charged as important as the International Criminal Court. Uh, and especially when the ICC is involved in your everyday life, you're, you know, you're sitting in a village or in a camp, you know, you're hoping that the peace process succeeds. Here's the International Criminal Court getting involved. Is it going to undermine the peace process? Is it going to help the peace process? Mm -hmm. Is the International Criminal Court going to bring NATO in to capture the rebels, which is what a lot of people thought at the very beginning? You don't know, right? Part of it is you don't know. Part of it is that, but also that, you know, as more and more information came about, what I found in Uganda is that the debates that people were having in, you know, in villages and communities and camps were exactly the same debates that were happening at, you know, academic conferences that I was going to in universities around the world. So, and so that's one issue. But I mean, there are people on all sides of these issues. There isn't any sort of single view that all, quote, victims don't have the same view of, of the International Criminal Court, all supposed, you know, we don't even know who is a victim to start with, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to, to note that, you know, there's no self-defined, self-evident set of victims. And even if you did identify a set of victims, they certainly don't have the same opinion on what justice means. Uh, on the victim point, um, there's a quote I found by the ICC's current prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda. She said, I bring it back to the victims. In the situations where we are investigating and prosecuting in Africa, the victims are African they deserve justice. Do you think that way of invoking the voiceless victim is problematic in any way? Or is this just an inevitability of based on the court's frameworks of what they want to accomplish, they inevitably have to use that type of language? Both. I mean, I think that the court, and especially Fatou Bensouda, has gotten in a situation where other ways of justifying what the court is doing have become more and more difficult. So at a certain point, I think Fatou Bensouda sort of turned to invoking victims as the way of justifying what the ICC is doing. Now, why do you invoke victims? Well, because victims, by definition, are voiceless. Whatever you say for the victims is inherently correct. So invoking a victim is a very sort of cheap, easy way of granting legitimacy to whatever decision you come up with. But this isn't entirely new. I mean, the idea that, quote, African victims need justice and justice is to be brought by the ICC is something that especially Kofi Annan was very um, fond of sort of declaring uh, in favor of of the ICC for a long time. So I think it's, yeah, I think it's, it's deeply problematic. I mean, I think that first off to, you know, go beyond the victim discourse and maybe think about, say, survivors instead, as has happened in other sort of regimes, other areas, to think about, you know, not voiceless victims needing an international court to come in and rescue them and give them voice and bring them justice, but rather to think of survivors who themselves are debating and organizing and trying to figure mm-hmm. out for themselves what justice means, what peace means, how to bring these about. So, you know, if you invoke a victim, it's very easy to... to 
condemn anybody who is against the ICC. I, I think that's a really interesting aspect of this conversation is like the how the invocation of the image of the victim functions as a discursive tool. Like there's this um, author, uh, Susan Hirsch, who talks about the victim deserving of global justice as a new subject in the um, international arena who is necessarily voiceless, but who requires protecting from a specific type of savior. The, the other side of the victim discourse is the savior discourse because it positions the ICC and other international institutions instruments as necessarily objective, being able to determine what the victim needs, how to meet out that form of justice. But it also, getting back to the beginning of this conversation, it necessarily depoliticizes the acts of the ICC themselves, because this is not a question of which uh, regimes do you support or don't support? Are you selective or aren't you selective? This becomes a question of we're doing what's best on behalf of victims, and therefore it diffuses any sorts of criticisms, right? It, it, it functions on two aspects. One, it provides a very crystal clear image of someone that is, is deserving of, uh, of global justice, but it also figures the ICC in a way that it's effectively beyond reproach. And I think it also taps into a longstanding image of Africa as being a terrain of victims, right? Back yeah. to the colonial period, of the terrain of victims in need of saving by, you know, Western saviors. So you could, in, on racial terms, on geographical terms. So I think it actually goes back to the very first question you were, you were bringing up of, of whether the ICC sort of has an Africa problem. And I think it's definitely a major, it's a deep problem that the ICC, you know, 15 years after having been set up, has prosecuted only Africans. But I'm not sure that the African Union's position identifies what that problem is as accurately as it could. Because like Georgiana was saying, half of the ICC's cases in Africa right now are actually African states asking the ICC to come in and prosecute somebody. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think we need to look at you know, it's absolutely right that we need to look at the sort of larger picture in order to understand why, A, the ICC has gotten involved basically only in Africa, and then B, why African states are now pushing back against the ICC, even though for the first five or six years of the ICC's operation, African states were actually welcoming it in mm -hmm. and asking for it to get involved. And in fact, African states to this day are still cooperating with the ICC when it suits their interests. Um, Sarera, I'd like to turn to you now because I know you've researched on a slightly different topic, but still related to the notion of justice in Africa, transitional justice efforts in Somalia in particular. How does that situation contrast with some of the ICC conceptions of justice? The question in Somalia is quite preliminary, and that's what I'm coming to terms with with my research, is that uh, questions of justice and transitional justice, specifically because the uh, state has not necessarily hit the idea of being post-conflict yet, are still in the early phases. There are conversations about what forms of justice are going to be necessary in the Somali case, but actual implementation other than one subheading in the provisional draft constitution in 2012 of um, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that is ap apparently forthcoming doesn't seem to be actually uh, in the works. But I think it does connect, the conversation we've been having that, uh, about the ICC does connect to wider conversations about transitional justice in general, specifically because you brought up the idea that the ICC is emblematic of a retributive vision of justice, right? So trials, um, tribunals, uh, accountability, the end to impunity, mm -hmm. those sort of regularized, formalized 
announcements of justice that are made through these specific mechanisms. But there are also alternative visions of justice from that specific vision within transitional justice literature. Like the truth commissions tend to be emblematic of like this restorative vision that's more about um, societies coming together, um, memory work, never forgetting. So the, uh, the ICC does fit into broader conversations of what forms of justice are meant to exist. But it, it, do, it does um, bring up questions about at what level justice can be met and therefore who is transitional justice for? Is justice this abstract concept that can be meted out through a formal mechanism and then be done and the chapters are closed? Or is it something that arises as a, a, a process at a more fundamental level within a specific community? All of these questions are the questions that I'm interested in investigating through the example of Somalia, but not necessarily through a specific mechanism, which has not occurred specifically in Somalia yet. So to build on this, because you are asking who transitional justice is for, how I see it is this transitional justice tends to be happening at the top. So we're speaking about political elites and not necessarily speaking about the larger populations and addressing these structural inequalities and the root causes of, of violence. So here we'd, we'd be speaking about another approach to justice that would be transformative justice. So you don't only focus on human rights violations that are necessarily civil or political, so it's just a personal direct uh, threat to the life of someone, and this is how usually the ICC intervenes, but you're also uh, looking at a guilt that is not necessarily individualized. You're looking at structural inequalities. So transformative justice would necessarily have an economic component that transitional justice, retributive justice lacks. And maybe to tie this together with the earlier conversation, I mean, the ICC has come under increasing criticism over the last, especially five years. And I think a lot of people are saying that it might even be in crisis now, sort of a legitimacy crisis. And I think this is coming out about as a result of the ICC basically trying to get its job done, right? Mm -hmm. The ICC was put in a very, very difficult situation. In fact, I think an impossible situation, but a situation of, as I was saying earlier, trying to enforce international criminal law in a politically divided, violent world. So the first decision that the prosecutor made was to go to Africa. And this was both in response to referrals by African states, but also, I think, in response to just sort of the image that Africa was a place that needed saving, that we can't let Rwanda happen again. We owe it to Africa to get involved. As Kofi Annan said, Africa wants this court. Africa needs this court, right? Mm -hmm. So that was the first decision it made. Then within Africa, it had to when it got involved in different cases, it had to decide whom was it going to prosecute. So the second choice the ICC prosecution made was to basically align itself with powerful African states against their political enemies. And so Uganda is sort of the paradigmatic case of this, where mm -hmm. the ICC took the side of the Ugandan government, prosecuted only the Lord's Resistance Army, the rebels, and basically left the government let the government off the hook to this day. Then the third step is, well, what is the ICC doing in these cases? Well, as Sorer and Georgiano were saying, it is putting into place retributive justice. It's trying to punish people. Now, is this applicable? Is this appropriate? Is individualized criminal justice appropriate for any kind of collective political violence? Mm -hmm. Perhaps not, right? And then is individual criminal justice appropriate for 
specifically African conflicts and African situations? Or are there sort of traditional notions of justice or customary justice in Africa specifically that make it you know, uniquely unsuited to the international criminal court? So you can see that sort of every one of these decisions from the ICC's decision to get involved explicitly in Africa then led to the accusation that the ICC is anti-Africa and the ICC is racist and neo-colonialist and all this. Its decision to align itself with specific African states led to accusations that the ICC is politicized, that it's just doing the will of Western powers, that it's taking sides. And then the fact that it's doing retributive justice led to all these accusations that it's not even relevant in the first place. It shouldn't even be involved because its justice is just not relevant to these situations. And these are questions that have been dogging international justice in the form in the Kiev trials for a long time. Even in the wake of Nuremberg, you have accusations that it's victor's justice, right? So these are questions that are not necessarily specific to this court, but the the way that they're tinged in the particular political context in which they operate at a whole new level of 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 criticism, I think. Where do you see the future of international justice in Africa going? Do you think these conflicts regarding how the ICC is perceived will only further deepen and further divide and you will start to see even more withdrawals? Do you think it's in danger? Do you think it's, a, if so, can it be saved? It is, is yeah. It is because it's in, it is, in, first of all, it is not acknowledging that it it lives in a political world and whatever decision it makes, they are going to have political consequences. Mm -hmm. So despite what the prosecutors might say that it's just justice and justice is apolitical, this is not the case. And you see it in the effects that you have on the ground. So one one way to solve this legitimacy crisis is to acknowledge that the International Criminal Court is political. What Georgiana just brought up, I mean, this is sort of the key debate going on amongst ICC supporters right now. Like you said, I think we've gotten to the point where the ICC, except for the you know, Office of the Prosecutor, basically. The Office of the Prosecutor still continues to insist we are not political, we don't do politics, because if they admitted it, it would be game over, because their legal legitimacy would be lost. So the quotes would forever be used against them. Exactly. And, yeah. yeah, that would be it. So they sort of have to maintain this fiction that they are entirely just doing justice, just following the law, etc. The problem is that Everybody else now admits that, yes, the ICC has been politicized. It is political. It's operating in a political world. There's nothing that can be done about it. So then the question becomes, okay, well, what do you do? One answer is, well, let's insulate the ICC from politics. We realize that it's been sort of, you know, uh, manipulated by the Security Council, by African states. We need to figure out ways to sort of insulate it better so that it can really do its its job and go back to really being a truly sort of legal institution. That's one answer. Mm -hmm. Another sort of more radical answer is to say, well, it's political. There's no way for it not to be political. So it should embrace that, right? It should admit that it's doing politics and it should say, Yes, we are trying international crimes, but here are the sort of criteria according to which we are deciding where to intervene and where not to intervene. So the ICC can say, well, we are intervening in Africa because we simply feel that the crimes that are happening there need to be addressed more for these reasons, right? So th there's been a calls for the ICC to sort of be explicit about the political influences that are going into its decisions precisely so that those decisions can then be held accountable or the ICC can be held accountable for those decisions. So that's another answer. A third answer is, which is the most sort of radical answer, which is to say, yes, the ICC is political. It will never admit that it is. It's always going to be politicized by the powerful. This is kind of the realist answer. Mm -hmm. 
And therefore, let's just get rid of it, right? Mm -hmm. Because it is a moralization of international politics. And for the sort of, you know, conservative realists, they feel like morality just confuses international politics. For the sort of leftist realists, they say it's a moralization of international politics. So it's a tool that the West is going to use to justify its its interventions into other, other parts of the world. It's just a new guise mm -hmm. for self-interested humanitarian intervention. Although the ICC isn't involved in Somali, I think there's a phrase in Somali that's perfect, mm -hmm. is that um, a lot of, uh, when people speak of uh, international organizations, sometimes they tongue-in-cheek refer to them as Qabil Kalihad, which means the sixth clan, which speaks to the idea that effectively, um, while international organizations that operate in the Somali political sphere might have an air of uh, objectivity and distinctness from politics, they operate in such a way that they're understood to be in it with everybody else. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. With interests, with ideas, with specific political uh, agendas, and that necessarily can't be divested from the rest of the political arena in which they operate. Um, I think coming to grips with that idea, although it might bust some of the normative assumptions that undergo the project to begin with, it's, it's kind of a necessary reckoning in order to be able to acknowledge why people won't necessarily get behind you in that sense and why uh, sentiment on the ground might be different from what you would hope people who had just experienced or had justice done for them to, to feel. We might also say that in the realm beyond the ICC, in the realm of sort of international criminal justice, There's a number of kind of interesting experiments that are going on on the continent of Africa right now that we might pay attention to. There was, of course, the trial of Hissène Habré that recently occurred. So some people have seen that as perhaps a kind of model that can be replicated for the enforcement mm -hmm. of international criminal law in Africa. It happened in, in Dakar, in Senegal. Um, there's also what has been nicknamed the African Criminal Court. So it's actually a special division of the African Court of Justice and Human Rights that's being established, which is sort of on the model of the ICC, but it has a number of um, sort of very interesting changes. It ex has expanded the set of crimes that come under its mm -hmm. jurisdiction. So no longer is it just sort of atrocity crimes, but it's also things like uh, environmental violence. It's things like arms trafficking, toxic waste dumping, and also expanding the persons who can be held held responsible, who can be uh, prosecuted. So it's no longer just, quote, natural persons. It's now also corporations. Ah, which makes a lot of sense when you talk about environmental destruction exactly. in some of these areas. So, so, yeah. there's a, so the, the, this African criminal court is taking shape. We don't know if it's actually going to get off the ground, but it is trying to set up a Africa-specific court that would hopefully be more sort of responsive to African realities, more embedded in African conflicts, embedded in the African Union, that also you know, addresses some of the sh shortcomings of the ICC and that it can go after corporations, it can deal with all these other crimes that exist around atrocity crimes. Mm. But at the same time, this, this African criminal court would not target heads of state. So it would keep this norm of sovereign impunity in place, which supporters of the ICC might say that Actually, this is why the ICC is so important, because it goes after the most responsible of orchestrating this, uh, these crimes, even if that means that they are head of state. So there isn't any impunity for sovereigns. But I guess heads of state actually do have immunity in front of the ICC. It's just a de facto immunity that the ICC will not admit. And especially powerful heads of state have immunity in front of the ICC. So, you know, all the entire Western world in any powerful state has impunity. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that the African Union court is sort of admitting this and is turning this <laughs> de facto immunity for heads of states into a de jure immunity. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. But it, it, once again, perhaps yeah. it's sort of making explicit something that's implicit. So then it can be a subject of debate. So mm-hmm. then we can say, OK, how can we deal with this now that, you know, now that this sort of you know immunity for heads of state has been formalized in this way now let's figure out ways to get around it and to deal with it instead of the icc which keeps saying we're going after everybody even heads of state and then they don't you say what are we gonna do about heads of state icc says it's okay we've got them you say no you don't right so So in some ways that could just admitting it as we've said before i think that could give it some legitimacy or this african court some greater legitimacy than the icc does yeah i mean debatably like like georgiana said it's it's dangerous i mean it it could go either way it's ambiguous but it's 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 interesting. So mm-hmm. I think for those who are interested in sort of possibilities of international criminal justice, I think looking at the African Criminal Court is going to be very, you know, illuminating of, mm-hmm. of, of a lot of possibilities. Yeah, that sounds like a really interesting future project. And just one last question on that, actually. Is this African Criminal Court being framed as... Um, kind of alongside as an additional mechanism to the ICC, or is this meant to be very explicitly a replacement for the ICC in Africa? There, there's different debates around it. I okay. mean, if you ask the lawyers and sort of the, the the people who are involved in actually setting up the African Criminal Court, they are putting it forth as something that's going to be complementary to the International Criminal Court. Okay. So in other words, the sort of official discourse is one of a kind of international set of courts starting with the ICC at the very pinnacle, then going to sort of regional courts like the African Criminal Court, and then to national courts, all of which are operating together in a sort of, you know, grand structure of global jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. That's one discourse. But there are other discourses around. Some say that it will be a substitute in the sense that it will have sort of primary jurisdiction. Others frame it more in terms of sort of peace and justice, that an African criminal court is going to be shaped by and is going to act according to the needs of peace and security on the continent rather than sort of a international concept of justice. And others accuse the ACC, the African Criminal Court of being set up precisely so as to be able to try to keep the ICC out and give immunity to heads of state, which is the sort of most pro-ICC approach, sort of takes that line on the African Criminal Court. So I feel that one thing that we haven't really touched upon is that the the International Criminal Court is a court of last resort. So what that means is that these investigations only arrive at the ICC when national governments are unable and unwilling to prosecute to their national systems. So one way that the uh, um, ICC has been trying to respond to this legitimacy crisis is to emphasize its positive complementarity function. So what that means is that it's trying to work more with the national governments to create capacity at the national level for the national legal system to uphold their responsibility to prosecute. Uh, And I think a good example for this is Colombia, where the ICC has been working in a partnership with the Colombian government. Yeah, so the uh, idea is that, and Moreno Campos said this very early on, the idea behind this positive complementarity is the idea that the ICC will have succeeded when it has no cases before it. Mm. And it's not that nobody's committing crimes, it's that all these national courts and everything else, they are the ones taking care of these crimes. So that the ICC as the court of last resort doesn't have to be resorted to. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Declarations. We'd love to hear any thoughts and feedback you have about this episode, so please tweet us at DeclarationsPod on Twitter and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash declarationspodcast if you'd like to contact us. Please subscribe and join us next week, where we'll be talking about the right to die. Thank you for tuning in to Declarations. <laughs>